With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you guys will join me and turn into James chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 13 and make our way to the end of the chapter. And the end of the book there in James, James chapter 5, verse 20. So we'll be verse 13 through 20 this morning. So lay all my notes out here and address those as we come to them. Well, thank you, band, uh, for leading us this morning. And uh, it's been a good morning uh, already. So I hope you are encouraged as I am about uh, um, the Lord's work and His grace. And I do thank God upon remembrance of you that uh, uh, his grace at work in our lives. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. And so I'm going to read the passage, pray, and then uh, uh, try to tie us all together from where we've been and in light of what we're going to be studying this morning. Our theme this morning is praying corporately. So when we think about uh, giving instructions on how the body would pray corporately, many of the things that we've seen were individual praying. And so it has uh, individuals praying and they can pray, yes, in a body. So those instructions should be there to help us as we look through Luke 11, um, how we pray biblically and then praying humbly uh, and how that would impact our body corporately, praying thoughtfully for the body. But ultimately, when the body gathers, how should we think about praying with one another? And so this, this passage actually gives us some insight to that. And so we wanted to give, we wanted to teach uh, prayer out of this particular passage to help in that process and to, to encourage us and even challenge us, is there instructions from the Bible, are there instructions that God would communicate to us about prayer that we're not obeying? And so that's what we wanted to look at, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and through 20. Let me read the text to us. James 5, beginning in verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, we ask that you would grant us wisdom. Father, you would give us an attitude that desires to learn, a desire to understand this revelation from your word to understand what your word says about you, what your word says about us, how we're to interact with one another, how we're to interact with you as it relates to prayer. And that, Lord, that we would have a desire not only to know it, but to skillfully apply it in our lives, to 
apply it biblically in our lives. And Lord, that we would, you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might be able to understand these spiritual truths for your honor and for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, we ask for your aid this morning. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want us to just dive right into the text and allow it to help us out and even to try to understand our outline this morning. And so the first point is five major points I want us to see as we walk through this. And just for truth and advertising, if you will, uh, the crux of our time is going to begin in verse 14 uh, and primarily be verses 14, 15, and 16. Uh, that's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time. But it, I do want to unpack the, the whole aspect of how these verses tie together for us to give make sure we understand context of this particular passage. But just for honesty in our, in our sharing, despite the five, five points, point four is going to be where most of our time is going to be um, spent this morning. And so you might be getting a little nervous and then thinking, we've still got one more point to hit. Uh, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to tie very closely to point four, and so we'll, we'll hit that uh, closer to the end. And so if you're thinking we're getting close to time being up, um, uh, don't worry, uh, it's going to all tie together here toward, toward the end and make sense. So I, I, I promise not to keep you here till uh, 1230 or 1 o'clock, uh, indeed. So just know that we're, we're going to get there. So uh, instructions for prayer within the local body of believers. So if we're going to be looking at this passage. I think this particular passage, this, they're found in your notes there, is this is instructions for prayer within the local body of believers. And so... Uh, uh, instructions for us when we gather and instructions, yes, for us uh, outside of our gathering in ways that would encourage us to pray for one another in a corporate mindset. And so the first thing I think James wants us to be mindful of, and I think it's a true, uh, it's very true. There it might be something I think that we would overlook relatively easily, but there, uh, your per- first point there, it says, re- first thing I think he wants us to remember is, is to remember that you live within a body of believers, Remember that you live within a body of believers. Now, think about that just for a moment. It seems pretty obvious uh, in one way, but then it can be very different, and especially in our individualistic society where we, we go to work, we have our worlds that we live in, and you may work long hours, you may work a different set of hours than what's normative for our culture maybe, and so your hours are look different. And, and so it's, it can be really easy to get in a routine of, uh, I get up, I go to work, I get home, I'm tired, I hit the garage door button, it comes up, I pull my car into the garage, I hit the garage door button, and it goes in, and everything of my existence is primarily in two locations, work and in my home. And even though that was not bad, we'll miss the aspect of other things that are going on in the context of our world, in the context of our lives. And so then, with that being the Monday through Friday, potentially even Monday through Saturday activity, what we've, what we've neglected is, is that God has called us to be a part of a family, a family, a faith family, a household of the household of God, the family of God. We're called children in the Bible, children of God. We're called joint heirs with Jesus. We're the bride of Christ, right? So we have brothers and sisters in Christ. Why does the Bible use this language? Why would the Bible describe us as one singular body as it relates to this local assembly, this local church, that has Christ as the head and we're the variety of the members, portions of us being arms and legs and fingers and toes and uh, um, um, modest parts of the body and, and more visible parts of the body. And the Bible uses this metaphor for us. And it's because we're supposed to be working together. And I think it's really easy for us to simply think, 
I come here this morning, and I think even maybe many times how pastors and churches, and even potentially pastors and churches that you've been a part of, set up our gatherings, set up their gatherings even, set up the gathering of the church in more of a consumeristic mindset. You come, you be blessed, receive something if you can, and may it go bless your life. When it's exactly opposite of what the Bible would be able to communicate. We come together to worship the Lord together, to grow together, to encourage one another together, exhort one another, as it's called today, and we miss many of the biblical one another commands because God has designed us to be in, in, uh, in, at enmity with the world, right? That we should be resisting. we in the world, but we're not of the world. And so as we desire to obey what the Bible says, it's going to be increasingly more difficult for us in this world. And so he's, he's granted us redemption uh, through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. He's granted us adoption to his family. He's predestined us for the blessings that he's given us. He's granted us the Holy Spirit. He's made us alive with him in Christ. He's sealed us with that Holy Spirit. And so now we can understand the word. He's granted us his word. And he's placed us within a local assembly that can help us to obey and to understand that word. And all that's for a purpose. And so James, as he wraps up, uh, it's interesting, the words that he uses here, and I want to point them out, and you may have overlooked them, but if you see in verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Anyone among you? Meaning, what's going on with the people around you? What's going on with the, with the body of Christ that you are serving with? The Bible would give instructions to let him pray. Is anyone then among you, it could be implied there, cheerful? Then let him sing praise. And so there's, Responsibly, I'm, assume, I'm, I'm assuming this morning that in this room, there potentially could be individuals who are cheerful this morning, and there's individuals that are coming to our gathering this morning who are suffering. It says again in verse, uh, in the following, in the, in the next verse, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick in verse 14? And it gives instruction, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then again, lastly, as we, he wraps up his letter, verse 19, my brothers, there's the language of brothers and sisters in Christ. If anyone among you, meaning the brothers and sisters in Christ, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. And so one of the things I want us to be able to see and even want us to see as we think about praying corporately is that do we think of the body of Christ in our prayer time? Do we understand that the condition of the body of Christ when we pray? And I think it harkens back to what we've been studying around, uh, studying through uh, two weeks ago when Pastor Tim led us in praying humbly. That do we understand that when quarrels and fights break out among us, that that's a natural thing that needs to happen? Not, and I say natural in that we, there's a, a flesh that we're fighting that's resistant, and then we operate in the flesh. It's going to be in opposition to the Spirit, and the Spirit will be in opposition to the flesh. And even 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11 begin to tell us that that's necessary. Primarily, verse, uh, chapter 11 tells us that divisions are among us to show genuine believers, and that genuine believers can work through conflict, and, and most of the time, uh, often, unbelievers cannot. And that they can find uh, remedy in that, whereas unbelievers uh, do not. Most of the time, unbelievers just depart. And so the reality in this is that in praying humbly, are we thinking of others? Or are we only thinking of ourselves? And that's what we talked about, selfish prayer and how God does not hear selfish prayers. But then even last week, as we were thinking about praying thoughtfully, that includes the body of Christ as well. And that Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus, praising God for his grace and his work at, at work, his grace at work in their lives. 
And as a result of his grace at work in their lives, he could see the Spirit's work and he could see fruit from coming from their lives. And then he continued to pray spiritually for them. And remember, the, the statement from last, last week was, praying thoughtfully desires the greatest good for others through prayer. Desires the greatest good for others through prayer. And so ultimately, Paul would ask for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. But then guess what Paul realized in his praying three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? The greatest amount of good that could come from my life is that the thorn would actually remain. Not that it would be removed. And that God has used that so that ultimately I would not boast and I would become prideful of the, many, of the visions that he had seen. The blessings that had been granted to him. The wisdom and the intellect and the, and the ability to be able to be God's representative. And so then he says that ultimately in his weakness that God is most glorified in him. That he realizes his utter need and dependence upon the Lord. And so as we're thinking through that, it's one of the things that I want us to think through. And it's one we alluded to last week and even in our small groups, small group time corporately uh, just moments ago is that we have to say, do we pray for our faith family spiritually? Are we praying for them and are we remembering them in our prayer to think, man, is there a Believers within the body that's suffering. There are believers in the body that's cheerful. There are believers in the body that's sick. And then what instructions would we give them to help them? So once again, this isn't just me teaching you. This is, this is the Bible teaching us so that I know how to interact with you when you're suffering. I know how to interact with you when you're cheerful. I know how to interact with you when you're sick. And you know how to interact with me and with one another in those same venues. When an individual is suffering, when an individual is sick, when an individual is cheerful. Those are instructions for us that we can then help aid and guide and direct people to the right, to the right needs. To the right um, prescriptions, if you will, for what they should do in light of those. And so the first thing we need to see, that I think that James wants to communicate, is that do we remember that we live within a body of believers? And that when we pray, we need to be praying for our body. We need to be praying with our body. And then the body gives, the Bible gives us instructions for that prayer. Now let's then look at these. So these instructions. The first thing is to remember. Second is then to pray if you are suffering. First would be instructions for prayer for the local body would be then to remember that you live within within a body. And then second to pray if you are suffering. Verse 13 says, is there any among you suffering? Let him pray. Now the suffering could be mean a variety of different things. Um, but ultimately, as even when we study through First Peter, there's a suffering that is just, right? And meaning that you suffer justly. Otherwise, uh, let me give it to you a different way, that you suffer because you've, you've been sinful and you are suffering as a result of your sin. And then there's a suffering that is unjust, and it's a suffering that for simply living righteously and living in a sin-cursed, fallen world that hates righteousness, ultimately you're going to suffer for doing what is Right. I think the primary meaning here in verse 13 is for the latter, suffering for righteousness' sake. The reason I think that is the preceding verses. Read with me if, uh, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich. So he's talking to those who, are, uh, who have been granted uh, much material wealth. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, 
are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here's what it's saying. There's rich people, and the rich people have taken, poor, uh, taken advantage of the poor. They have workers and laborers that are serving with them, and they withheld their wages for their honest day's work as a result of fraud. And as a result, the cries against them uh, for that fraud are crying out against them, and the cries of the harvesters of those who work, the laborers who have harvested for them, have reached the ears of the Lord's hosts. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So he's giving warning to the rich to be able to say, I mean, you're, you're taking advantage of and in an an, an, the righteousness of others, of the good faith work of others, and they're not, they're not resisting you in this. They're trusting the Lord in this manner. And yet the Bible is going to condemn them for that. Verse 7, he continues to talk to them. So he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So he says, hey, the farmers are being patient. Then you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who remain steadfast. I'm sorry. We consider, bless those who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so in this passage, you begin to see the suffering for righteousness sake. The righteous one who's been condemned and murdered in verse 6. The suffering prophets in verse 10. And even the suffering of Job, which we know the whole purpose of the, the book of Job is to be able to see that there is a category for, for uh, suffering that is not the direct result of personal sin. And so this will be a suffering for righteousness sake or a suffering unjustly. It wasn't justified by the re- reaction of the, the, uh, as a direct result of the person's sin. And so as a result of this, what was the encouragement then for those who, su- who are suffering, unright- or suffering for righteousness sake or suffering unjustly? The Bible says for that person to let him or to let her pray. To encourage you, just as it says here, that we would be patient and we would be establishing your hearts knowing that Christ is coming. All the more for us to be able to cry out to our Heavenly Father for His name to be hallowed. And even in His name being hallowed as we spoke just in our, our small group time, that ultimately God is just and He will do on the earth what is right. That God will be glorified and that judgment is coming as even this, this section says. So we should, we should lean upon Him. That ultimately that He will be the, the final judge. We can, we can realize that the cries of our cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. We are waiting for the coming of the Lord, that when He makes all things right, things may not be right here and now. The righteous may be murdered. Our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was murdered. The righteous one, He being the epitome of the righteous one. And ultimately, that we should be patient in this time. This is the encouragement the Bible would, would have us to do, that we would pray and pray in light of a sovereign Lord and a sovereign Creator, And so when individuals are suffering, we should encourage them. Are you praying? How is your prayer life? What are you praying? Once again, as we think about the greatest good, so praying thoughtfully desires the greatest good for others through prayer. When we, we, we talk with them, when we share with them, we encourage them. We, we, it's okay to ask them, how are, they, how are they responding? How are they praying? What are they praying? How are they trusting the Lord in this? If Tim's going to lead us through an entire section next week uh, from Philippians 4 that, 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 that tells us how that... 
the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. And it may be that the truth of what the Bible actually says is something that you've not, that you might have derived a different interpretation. It's not actually true. And so the Bible would give us means. And so I don't want to unpack all that for us tonight, today, but ultimately the reality would be there is a means for us to be seeking the Lord in the time of suffering. And that's exactly what all of First Peter was written to, to encourage the saints in that. Number three, instructions for prayer within the local body of local body believers. Number three says to sing praise if you are cheerful. Just seems like the opposite, right? So there seems like the, the body, even of these local um, believers who have been scattered abroad, that it's been much suffering that they've endured. But then in, in verse 13, it says that on the kind of the opposite. So you, you're suffering, then let them pray. But then if anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. I want to communicate, this isn't a means to be able to say these are opposites in, in, in all essence. So meaning... But should the cheerful one not pray with any type of sober-mindedness? Well, sure, they should. So it's not just simply saying that only sing praises as if they shouldn't pray. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. But then even for the one who is suffering, should they never praise the Lord? No, the Bible says that we should rejoice always. And we should always be thankful in prayer. And so it's not that they're opposites, but ultimately when you are suffering, you're going to come into the body with that potentially that disposition. Right? You might come into the body knowing heavy with, with the realities of the sufferings that you are, in, are enduring. Or the opposite is that you come in and there's uh, much joy in your heart as a result of God's abundant blessings. And so you begin to think about that in light of this. There would be two potential individuals who could show up here on any given Sunday, and one could be coming here for the very first Sunday since the birth of a new child. And the other could be coming here having lost their own spouse in the same week maybe through tragic events. And so the encouragement for both would be to those who come with different dispositions to the body, right? Neither in sin, but both with different dispositions with the body, be able to say to the one who is suffering in the context of our service, let them pray. God, encourage my heart this morning. May I trust you. May I hear your word this morning as, as, as the sermon's being preached. May I not focus simply on myself. May I try to minister to the body of Christ. May I hear words of encouragement. And so the, the person pray. But then on the other one that has the newborn baby, that they, that's, that's new life within. So one life has been taken, one life has been granted, and they're coming with a cheerful disposition. And the Bible would say, then sing praise all the more. The cheerful should sing praise to God. Clear, God clearly is one of the components of biblical prayer that we studied a few weeks ago, is it not? Luke chapter 11, verse 2 says, And he said to them, Jesus teaching, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name we want god's name to be praised and so the cheerful would be encouraged to do so as would the suffering but ultimately in this is speaking to those who are cheerful to say listen here would be the encouragement for you to pray and isn't it true oftentimes when the affairs of our lives are favorable and the blessings of god in our lives are abundant it is in these moments that we are less likely to seek god in prayer and worship god in praise in it when that you're reaching uh, a time where there's extreme difficulty and it seems that there is no options, that it's, sometimes it's in those seasons that it's easiest to seek God in prayer. But how sometimes we can so flippantly come in and out of the body when things seem to be going well and the abundance or there's food on the table and there's money in the bank and the, 
the cars are operating well and there's no major illnesses within our end. We, that's once again, we kind of get into that whole hum pattern that I described before. We go to work, we come home for work, we spend time with our families and we kind of just walk through without the reality of even realizing there might be needs within the body or even really seriously spiritual needs in our own lives, but they are overlooked until times of crisis. And so it's easy many times to overlook God in prayer and to overlook worshiping God in praise when things are going well. Whereas the response during times of difficult, uh, these times should be the opposite. We should be thankful to God for his mercy, grace, and favor, considering his provision. And so the Bible would say, to those who are suffering, pray. And to those who are cheerful, sing praise to the Lord. And just pause before we move to the next point, point number four, which we'll be camping out the longest. Just think about those for a moment. Just kind of self-assessment, self-examination. In your praying, do you pray for the body? This, just this body. Now, we're not moving outside of here, but just how often are you praying for members of this local fellowship? And are we praying thoughtfully for members of this fellowship? Are we aiding this members of this fellowship to be praying biblically? I think about it often, even having gone through the study with my own children and the prayers that they would pray, the things that they would say that they were going to communicate to God or they want or they expect from God. And it's, it's even making me be more attentive to my own children, more, more attentive to listening to you as you pray, and not in any kind of judgmental way. Just knowing the conditions of your heart, not judging you, but more so just listening to you and to be able to discern what is it that's going on in their lives. And so it's helping me to remember that there's a body of believers that I'm responsible for and that we're together in some forms or fashion, all of us are responsible for one another. Do I encourage those who are suffering to pray? I say this only because before I became a believer, um, even when I graduated high school, they give out senior superlatives, right? So basically you get the most likely to succeed or the most intelligent or the class clown or a variety of other things. And so... But then my senior class, I received the, the class superlative as friendliest. Friendliest. Now, I don't know if that's normal for everybody else. Might, we just might be making up stuff in Habersham County. But ultimately, that's, that was the thing that, that it was granted and it was voted on by my peers. You know the reality in that, that I could be a friend, that many that the, the, in the world would think I'm friendly. But really, it was uh, not so much about them as it was for me. A genuine friend would have warned more of my friends about hell. A genuine friend would have confronted many of, my, many of my classmates in light of their sin. A genuine friend would, would have told more people about salvation if it had happened. Now, once again, my salvation experience, as we saw last week, didn't come till after that time. But even in that, my point is to be able to say many times we can do friendly things that looks friendly to the world, that looks encouraging to the world, and it's of no eternal value. And I say that simply to be able to say that as we remember one another, it's not necessarily just to give pleasantries and to be friendly with one another in a general superficial sense, but do we genuinely care for the soul of the person that we're talking to? And if so, when we remember them in prayer, we want to know if they're suffering and we want to encourage them what to do in that time. And we want to encourage them when they, when they are cheerful that they should sing praise. And the individual who's here, who's given birth to the newborn baby, should not feel limited. They shouldn't praise the Lord for his gifts as much as, especially or even in light of the one who is here the same Sunday who's had a wife or a loved one taken in death. It can be a, 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 a mindset to be able to go, well, I shouldn't praise the Lord. Well, the reality is, 
what that individual needs to realize that both the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The members of the body need to work in harmony with one another. And yes, do we rejoice with those who are rejoicing? Yes, and we pray and we mourn with those who are mourning. And what we, all of us have to realize is that both of those things are happening simultaneously every time we gather together. And should be happening simultaneously every time we get together. And so we should remember that we live in the body of believers. Some will be suffering and they should pray and some should be singing because they are cheerful. Which leads us to the fourth and probably the most overlooked. Instructions for prayer within the local body of believers. Number four encourages us to call for the elders if you are sick. Call for the elders if you're sick. This is verses 14 through 18. Let me read it again. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the encouragement here is the Bible says that if anyone among us is sick, we should call for the elders of the church. And the first thing we need to understand as we're walking through this is, what does the, the, the passage mean when it says you are sick? A variety of debates and translations would, and Bible scholars have debated on this, what this may mean. Two primary responses are given. One would mean literally how we would derive sickness in our modern times uh, and our, even our current uh, situation would be physical sickness, a physical illness, a bodily condition, a bodily ailment. Whereas then some look at this passage and see a spiritual weariness. Then in line of the passage where it's talking about uh, patience and suffering and that the rich are, are ruling over the poor in an, un, in an ungodly manner and they're going to be judged for that one day. But ultimately we should be patient in the midst of this suffering and suffering was there seen in the righteous one in verse 6 and pa- suffering was there speaking of the prophets in verse 10 and suffering was spoken of with uh, Job in verse 11 and ultimately that you also in verse 8 should be patient in the midst of this suffering. And so ultimately it should be seen that potentially as a result of suffering you've gotten to a point of just unbelievable spiritual weariness. How are we to interpret? Is it physical sickness or spiritual weariness? Well, the reality is the overwhelming evidence by Bible translators favor the long-standing tradition of translating the word the word as it's translated in the ESV here as a physical ailment or physical sickness. And the word, the Greek word astaneo, uh, it refers to, uh, it can refer to spiritual weakness. Uh, but, but and whenever that is referred to as spiritual weakness, this meaning is made clear by a qualifier. Um, and so it would speak to how that is. It's going to give you insight to the passage by the a passage having a word that qualifies it to give us indication that's what it's speaking of. Or simply with overt understanding by the context itself. Whereas this speaking here does not communicate that as strongly. And so the Bible translators and the overwhelming evidence of Bible translators have communicated this to be actual sickness. This is why it's then translated here in this passage, physical sickness. There are times, as we've communicated, where it's translated weariness, as in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and others. But here it is translated, and for good reasons, uh, for it to be translated sickness. So the reality then, with that understanding, is then when you're physically sick, you should call for 
the elders. Now, that's interesting. And so when a person has physical sickness, then what are the biblical instructions? Well, the instructions, the physically sick should call for the elders of the church. Now, uh, you think, what? Just to recent days, we didn't have a plurality of elders here. What would you do? Well, the, spirit, the most spiritually mature within the body of Christ would be what it was speaking of, right? So a church that has only a single pastor, uh, what would you do? Well, the spiritually mature should be called upon. Now, our desire is to be more biblical in our approach to Scripture, using the terms and using the, 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 uh, the biblical framework for how the church should be ran. We've moved to this where this would make more sense in our context. But many churches don't have that government that church government, how they are ordered. And so as a result of that, what should they do? They would call for the pastor and for any of the spiritually mature to be able to aid them in that. But so the instructions are to call for the elders. Now here begs a question. So at what point of sickness should a person call for the elders? What point should a person call for the elders? And so the context appears to be serious. And so that uh, it'd be a serious condition that they would call for the elders. Part of that is that they're calling for them, right? And so to even use the term call for them would make, give the appearance that the physical condition is such that it would impact them to even come to where the elders would be gathered. So you think about it, and if they are unable to make it to the gathering, they would have to call for, for example, Pastor Tim and I, whereas if they were physically able to be here this morning, they wouldn't need to call us. They could come talk to us at the end of the service or before the service. And so to send word to make a call for them to come to them may speak of a very, a very serious condition that may be taking place. Also, when you think about the teachings that were based on teachings from a couple weeks ago, uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 on selfish prayers, that ultimately uh, very, very minor things would potentially be viewed as selfish to be able to call for the elders for other types of illnesses or physical conditions. For example, a paper cut, hangnail, right, stub toe. You, you can begin to see that there's can be extremely selfish things that I'm just really upset that I want them praying for me that my life is inconvenienced by some minor uh, situations and minor issues and minor ailments, and that would ultimately burden, be burdensome to the ministry of the elders, would it not? I would think that some of the most common um, illnesses and some of just very basic things that really doesn't require just some, a runny nose or a cough or a scratchy throat, you're immediately calling for the elders for them to come pray for you. And so as we walk through this, the context then of physical illness would lead us to believe that the condition was in some form serious in nature. And what we don't want to lead you to believe is that you have to be on your deathbed in order for that to be able to happen. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We don't want it to be that you're about to pass away before you'd ever reach out to the elders and be able to communicate or talk to them. And so the reality is it, needs to, it would be a serious condition, enough that you would request prayer for but then in requesting prayer for it, the encouragement would be then at that time, then biblical instructions would be to seek the elders out, which then begs this question. When, when you were going to be able to do that, then um, what are the elders to do? And then eventually we're going to look at why are the elders the ones called to do it? What are they to do? And then why are they the ones called to do it? So let's, let's answer those in order. What are the elders to do for the person when they are called? Right? So the person's sick. It needs to be a, a, somewhat of a serious illness, a serious sickness. And so they call for the elders. What do the elders do? The Bible says first they are to pray over the person. So who's praying? Well, ultimately, the believer would be praying, yes. But the ones we pray would be the elders leading that time and praying for and over the person themselves, which is different, is it not? This is a different instruction that was, was, was granted to them before, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. So first, they are to pray over the person. Second, they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So those are the two commands in verse 14. Pray over the person, 
and then to anoint the person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this, these instructions have led to a variety of poor interpretations. Let me give you two major ones, right? Multiple poor interpretations, but I'll give you two major ones. Number one, in AD 852, right? So 852 after the, the death of Christ, there was the sacrament of extreme unction, the last rites. Catholic Church would begin to say, in an attempt to honor this command, would then begin to send out priests in order to pray over and to give extreme unction on behalf of those, the sacrament of extreme unction, to those who are, are uh, about to die. Now, the reality, and that's not at all what's taking place in this passage, there's an expectation in the passage that the person would be healed. Expectation in the passage that there could be healing and restoration that would take place. And second of all, it's not to absolve people from sin. Ultimately, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross for that. And so, and one thing we don't want this being communicated is how, and how that's been misinterpreted is as a result of the sacrament of extreme unction that's continued on in the Catholic Church, right? The last rites. And second was the expectation of uh, divine healing every single time. Now, with that, many would interpret this. Here's what the passage says to us. Anointing him with oil, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And in verse 16 again, uh, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so the reality in this is that there's an expectation that when there's a, the, the prayer and there's a gift of faith, as it says there, the prayer of faith, so there'll be a gift of faith in praying, and then ultimately that any time that's done, there's an expectation you're healed every single time. The reason I say that's a poor interpretation is that ultimately in that, that's the, the, the outworking of the prosperity gospel that's infiltrated the church. The, the outworking of the prosperity gospel that's infiltrated the church and its thinking. That if you just have enough faith, then ultimately then these prayers are mandated to be answered. Now, once again, the reality in there, then go to Paul. Now, he didn't call for the elders because he was an apostle. But even Paul, did Paul not have faith to pray for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, which was... Most believe was a physical, not a spiritual ailment. I think Paul had faith, and so much so that he wrote a third of the New Testament. Right. So the reality here is that I don't think it's a. And that's the issue that's at hand here, and so we need to be careful that we're not importing wrong theology and importing things that's not taking place in the context of the passage. So the reality is that if there's a physical illness. It's a serious physical illness that the person would call for the body or for the elders to come pray over them and to anoint them with oil. Uh, and so here's just a, a question. So is this a practice then that we are obeying as a local body? Think about this for a moment. Is this a practice that we're obeying as a local body? I know here is probably within the last three months. This happened twice within the body of Christ here. And I, I applaud that. I'm encouraged by that. People are looking to the Scriptures and desiring to honor and obey the Scriptures where there would be a desire to say, hey, uh, do uh, examine, do pray. And there's more to come that I want to unpack there. But I just want to be able to say, it is happening. It is taking place. There is teaching on this. There is uh, examples of this that I can give. Two, two examples that immediately come to mind I could be able to give. This is taking place. But the reality is, is, is this normative for us to want to call for others, to want to call for the elders to be able to help us? And we're going to talk now. The next question I'm going to ask is, and why call for the elders? We're going to talk that through that. But I just wanted to be able to ask, is this a natural reaction for you? If diagnosed with cancer, if, if walking through major illnesses, a major 
um, uh, struggles to be able to, to call for the elders to be able to aid in this process with you. And if not, why not? Why not simply demonstrate faith that the, what the Bible would communicate is a command that we'd be able to do in praying for one another corporately, that we would begin to do that for one another and, and together with one another. And so I would encourage us that as, you, as there's appointments that you were given, as, as that would be scary appointments of things that would be taking place, ongoing physical ailments that's drastically imp- impeding and impacting your ability to carry out the functions that God has called us to do as being a, uh, a husband or being a, a, a spouse or being a wife or a mother. Carrying out those in, due to some physical illness that's drastically impacted. Why would we not want to do what the Bible says and to call for the elders to pray for you? So is this a practice that's we're being as a body locally? And I say no, not normally. And this may be a direct result of biblical teaching on biblical prayer. And this is one of the reasons why we wanted to go through this study in this series. To say, have we taught practically how to obey this Bible? I know we've taught through James chapter 5 uh, in, in times where we were kind of looking at the whole. But then practically exhort and encourage specifically in light of prayer to be able to, to uh, carry out the commands that the Bible would call us to do. And so if not, I would encourage you to think through, well, when would be the time? And this would be good and maybe even opportunities for us to discuss next week in our small group. To be able to go, when would be the times that it would be appropriate to call? And uh, I don't want to be selfish in, in my, my approach, but here's the reality that Pastor Tim, I don't want you to know. We welcome the opportunity to hear from you. We want to know what's going on in your lives. We want to welcome you to know how, how, what my, things may be going on in your life that could be aided in that. Which then begs the question then, why why Pastor Tim and I? Or why the elders, even at large? Why call for the elders of the church to pray? Now, this is, this is uh, specific to do. Very specific. James could have. He, James was a pastor of a church himself, the church in Jerusalem. He, he could have simply said that there's other strong believers in your, in, your, in your faith family. You can just go to anyone. But he specifically gives instructions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to call for the elders. Why? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask. And so, try to unpack a little bit of that. The previous two instructions, so when you're suffering, pray, and when you're cheerful, sing praise. The previous two instructions were given to the individual and could be accomplished without the aid of anyone else. So, one who's suffering can pray, and it didn't require anyone else to be engaged with that. The one who is uh, cheerful can sing praise, and it require anyone else to be involved. However, this instruction requires the aid of others. Furthermore, the instructions require seeking out specific persons, namely the elders of the church. So this begs the question, why the elders? And I think the context, even of what is explained here in the, of the passage, will aid us to see there's two important expectations for the command. Two important expectations that will be laid out, laid forth for us to be able to see as a result of this command. Number one, it says in verse 15, and the prayer of faith, will save the one who is sick. And it would be the prayer of faith. Now, it's to say the only one that demonstrates faith within the body of Christ is the elders. No. Would not want you to be able to communicate that. But the reality is, when you think about faith and faithfulness and those who would have a, should have a good handle on the Word of God, the, one of the best places to start would be with your elders, would it not? Those who rightly divide the Word of truth, how to handle the word so they would be a worker need, need not to be ashamed. They're spending much of their time in, in the word, the ministry of word and of prayer. You think about going back to all the way back to Acts chapter 6. What was it, the two functions of the, the ministry of those who were in leadership positions, the leadership of the apostles at that particular time? We want to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and the ministry of 
prayer. And so here you're, you're seeing that they were going to be praying, and so they have a ministry for those things. And so the, I think the Bible would begin to speak of that the prayer of faith would be one that would be a faithful prayer, men who are going to pray faithfully. And so if you begin to think about even how that begins to tie into uh, our passage, even if you uh, go back to uh, what uh, I'll be preaching in two weeks from now. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. This is James chapter 1. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that we receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in his ways. And so we need to trust the Lord. And so your elders should be one that you could... You should be able to have trust, and they're going to seek the Lord. They know God's word, and they want to obey God's word, and they want to encourage you to obey God's word, and they're willing to pray faithfully over you. So I think it's why you would call the elders. So that would be number one. Number two, the reason why would you call the elders is as found there in verse uh, 15 as well. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the prayer of faith will say to the one who's sick, and it will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the reality here is, we'll talk about this in a moment, that the passage is alluding to the fact that potentially the sickness is related to some form of sin. It's related to some form of sin. And so whom better to know what sins are and what sins aren't sins than the elders over your church who are in the Word regularly, who are teaching the Word, hopefully biblically and effectively. And so they're and are willing to call out sin with confidence, confidently. Not that they're eager to point out sin in the sense of like they find joy in it, but the reality is they, their, their longing is and watching after your soul so they don't want you to be walking in the context of sin. And so if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so you, you think about then how that ties to Galatians chapter 6. Now, Galatians 6 doesn't simply speak toward elders, but it would definitely include elders. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you were walking, you've been born by the Spirit, right? So you're alive in the Spirit, meaning that you've been born again, the Spirit resides in you, and you are now walking in the Spirit. So you're alive in the Spirit, and you're walking in the Spirit. So you who are spiritual should restore Him and a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, that yes, that is given to the body at large. But when you think about the context of this command in this particular passage, why would then you would call for the elders? I think it's because they desire to be faithful in the word and a faithful with prayer. But then also, they, just, they, they should be spiritual men who are alive in the spirit, they've been born again, and who are walking by the spirit. Otherwise, they should not be affirmed as elders to begin with. That's why you have qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and in Titus 1, 5 through 9. There should be a, a habit of seeing these guys living out the context of what the Bible would say. should be expectations and qualifications for elders. And so the reality is then the Bible would then speak of two things. Praying biblically over the person in light of then even James 4. It says we shouldn't, we, we, we have not because we ask not, but then we ask and we don't receive because we ask amiss. Hopefully your elders would be no know how to lead you and to pray over you in a manner that would be full of faith, James chapter 1, praying humbly and not selfishly over you, and then being able to pray in a way that would be not only faithful but biblical so that then even Galatians 6 could happen, that if there was sin needed to be called out, they love you enough and care for you enough in order to carry that out. Which then begs the question, then, how are sin and sickness related? How then are sin and sickness related? And this this is important for us as we walk through James. Together. 
It says there, just to keep it in context, verse 15, so in the prayer of faith will save him who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So it doesn't mean it's always physical sickness is related to sin. And then it says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Now, so you're seeing here, there's a sins to be committed, they'll be forgiven. And then confess your sins one to another and pray for another that you may be healed. So there's a, a tying to healing and forgiveness as those relate together. And so we, uh, Pastor Tim and I, and I believe the passage would say very clearly here that there's a reality that sometimes physical sickness, physical ailment is related to sin. This is one of the main reasons why I don't believe this is spiritual weariness. You think, why would that be the case? Because I think spiritual weariness would always be a description of some form of sin. You're not willing to be thankful always. You're not living at the peace of God. The, the peace of God would surpass all understanding, would guard your heart and mind. To be thankful always. To pray without ceasing. Those are commands to be able to do. And if you're at a point in your life where you're not, that form of, of a variety of things that might be going on spiritually should not be impacting your, your reality to pray. That would always, so to be able to say, if that's the case, then it should, if he has committed sins, so I think spiritual related a- a- aspects that would prevent you from seeking the Lord would be some form of, of a doubting of God, or some, which is exactly what James 1 will talk about in a, in a couple of weeks, that ultimately we should not doubt. We should ask in faith without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose they receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and stable in all his ways. And so the reality in this as we walk through, then that I believe it's a physical sickness that can be, doesn't always be, can be related to sin. So let me walk you through just a few things real, really quickly that can help us to be able to think through the relationship of sin and sickness, right? Sin and sickness. Number one, now listen to me carefully. I want you to, to not hear what I'm saying. Number one, all sickness is related to the fall. Tracking with me? Otherwise, there would be no death, there would be no sickness. Why? And when the new heaven, new earth, there would be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears. So there's no sickness. So prior to the fall, there was no sickness. And so we can generally say, generally say, across the board, sickness is a result of sin. And when we tie it to the fall, all right, so that's clear. Sin entered the world, and as a result of that, we began to die, right? So we're separated from God spiritually, and then we were going we to die physically. And so we can say that. So all sickness is related to the fall. Um, uh, to the fall. And so as a result, we can say that. Number two, some sickness is not directly related to personal sin. So all is related to sin generally because of the fall. But then some sickness is not directly related to personal sin. So uh, there's something that can happen to me, and it may not be a direct result of sin on my part. Let me give you the most... Uh, uh, extensive example of that in the Bible, Job, right? That was why the, the Job was, was written there. There was a theology that said, ultimately, uh, prosperity type of gospel being displayed there, that ultimately, if all goes well for you, then you're right with God. And if all doesn't go well for you, then you're not right with God. And so the three friends that show up, they've continued in the debate that takes place, is Job saying, man, I try to provide sacrifices not just for me, but for my extended family, for all my children. I want, to, I want them to honor God and to love God and to know God. And then everything goes, goes bad, and he doesn't know the conversation that's taking place in heaven between Satan and, and the Lord, right? And no one knows that conversation. We're privy to that. 
as we read the scriptures, but Job is not privy to that. Otherwise, it'd be obvious, but we go, oh, clearly God's allowing Satan to, to test me, see if I remain faithful. But he was not privy to that instruction. So the, the whole purpose of that is to be able to say there are times when it's not a result of your own personal sin that there's some physical ailment. You see that also in the New Testament with John chapter 9. Is this man, is it because of this man's sin or his parents' sin that he's born blind? Still tracking with it? So it must be, just like those of Job, it has to be either his sins or his parents' sin, otherwise he wouldn't have been born blind. Who's God punishing here? And Jesus says, neither. So the works of God can be made manifest and God can be glorified. Neither. And so all sickness is related to the fall. Some sickness is not directly related to personal sins. We see that in Job and in the man born blind. And some sickness, number three, is directly related to personal sin. That would be the context of this passage that we're in today, right? And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your your sins one to another and pray for another that you may be healed. And so there's a reality here that there is a context of personal sin that needs to be repented of. And God's actually, um, that that, that sin has been allowed into life of the person as as a result of sin. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 as well. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 11 is related to the Lord's table. Whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and the drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen to this, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Why? Because they're They've got sin in their lives. The whole issue of this entire passage is that they're coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner because they're fighting and bickering and there's factions and divisions among you. And so there's personal illness that's directly related to personal sin. And we can see this, can we not? That if an individual lives a lifestyle that's in contradiction to the ways and the will of God, that they they might contract AIDS or hepatitis. An STD. And it can have physical ramifications because of their personal direct sin. Of rebelling against God in, in, in any of those measures, in any of those ways. Now, it's not to say that ultimately if they repent of that, God is mandated to heal them. But ultimately in that, we can see. So I'm just trying to give you an idea of like sin and sickness. To know that this category actually exists because it's going to lead us to our fourth point here in just a moment. So all sickness is related to the fall at large. Some sickness that, we, that interacts our lives, just like with Job and the man born blind, is not a, as a result of our own direct personal sin. And then sometimes sicknesses in our life is a, directly related to personal sin, as AIDS and other things that I've already described. So then la, the last category is then some sickness, some sickness, a fourth category here, some sickness is given to reveal sin. And God is using the physical infirmity to bring about a promise of healing as a result of repenting. That's what this passage is saying. There is a category where God ordains a physical infirmity that is a direct result of sin that ultimately, when repented of, there's a promise of healing. It's a promise of healing. Does that always no? There is a promise of healing. That's what we, I think we see here in this passage. Prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he's committed sins, he will be given, forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Pastor Tim and I were talking about that, and a beautiful example of this is given with Nebuchadnezzar. Is it not? There's a physical ailment that he has, right? He's acting like a beast in the field. And the purpose was he was prideful. He's prideful. He would not repent. And then ultimately he repents and he is restored. Right? So God sometimes places physical ailment, physical illness, physical infirmity in our lives. And it's, it's with the express purpose that ultimately that it would reveal some sin that has not been repented of, and then through repentance that ultimately God could bring healing. That's not to say he will every time, just like I'd mentioned before. Some sickness that's directly related to personal sin isn't this category. You have a, uh, a lifestyle that was in contrary to the work, the work and will of God even prior to salvation or others, and so then you, 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 there's consequences to your sin that may cause your life, and God chooses not to heal them. But is there a category that God will choose to heal it? I believe this is exactly what the passage is saying, which is why then he will go through the... the Illustration of Elijah, which we'll talk about in a minute, that ultimately the righteous person has great power as it's working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it works. Because why? It can bring about healing. And so there is a category for that. So once again, all sickness related to the fall. Some sickness is not directly related to personal sin. Job, John 9, where uh, the man born blind. Some sickness is directly related to personal sin, even unto death, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 32. And then clearly in this passage, some sickness is given to reveal Sin and God is using the physical infirmity to bring about a promise of healing as a result of repenting, as we see here in verse 15 and 16. Now, a few other comments as we relate to, I told you this is going to be the bulk of our time this morning that we've been able to navigate through this. What about the anointing of oil? What is going on with that? Right? And so this has been hijacked by a variety of different means. And, and, and so what ultimately, can this mean, what does this mean? Well, two major camps, two major, major categories. One would be the, the oil is medicinal. So they didn't have doctors the way we would have doctors today with all the variety of means they'd be able to have. And so oil was used as a medicinal use. Is that what it's communicating here? This would be the picture in, I think it's Luke chapter 10 with uh, the Good Samaritan. And so he used the wine and the oil to cleanse the wound and then to be able to minister to the wound. And so that's what, when the, the Samaritan found the Jewish man who was all beaten up, he used this. And so it could, could it have... Would it have, in the context of this passage, medicinal use? Is that what it's saying here? Is it ceremonial in the sense of um, the anointing of kings? And they would oil the king, right? And so the anointing of David with oil, and oil was poured upon his head. Was this the anointing of, of kings in that manner? Uh, that it was uh, some type of a, a coronation, coronation in that sense? Or for the, the priests, uh, the Levites, to be able to be set apart for God in that purpose? Uh, or then lastly, uh, and, or within that category of like ceremonial, is it simply just symbolic? We're trusting God, and this is a, a symbolic means for us to be able to trust the Lord in it. Well, regardless of what stance you take, let me first communicate this. It's not the oil that does the saving, right? It says, that, yes, that's something they do. Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with the oil in the name of the Lord. But then it's the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick. And it's the confession of sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So it's confession if there's sin that needs to be repented of. And there's faith in the Lord that to be the one who's going to be the new restoring. So it's not the oil that will do it. Let's be clear. So whatever you, we think it is, it's not the oil that has the saving, uh, the saving component, the saving power here. As it will continue to go on here, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. It's the prayer that is done. And so 
regardless if you think, well, if this church does use the anointing of oil, does not use the anointing of oil, the reality is it's not the oil that does the saving. It's the prayer that does the saving. And the confession, if there's sin, that needs to be confessed up. So where would we land? We would land that it would be symbolic, right? It would be symbolic. And you, you can see this language in a variety of places, even in Psalm 145, 141, as it even relates to, even I think it ties well with this passage uh, about uh, repentance and, and uh, confession of sin. Let me just read that to you. I think it could even be a help as we walk through this. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. That's unusual, isn't it? And it says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. And this is what it says. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. So potentially there could be symbolic in that ultimately that a rebuke or correction that would be an oil to my head. It would be a comfort to me. Be an aid to me. Be an instruction for me. As I receive the word of God and I honor the word of God. But ultimately here we would see it being symbolic. Not ceremonial that it has to be done in order for God's prayer of faith to be heard or to be answered. Um, and clearly not the agent that would uh, medicinal. Even though I, I see aspects of it uh, medicinal use. Especially if the individual uh, is hurting or is suffering. And so ultimately there would be an oiling of the person. Is what it means to oil the man in the name of the Lord. And so... Is it symbolic? Is it um, um, uh, ceremonial? Ultimately, I, we believe it to be symbolic. And so then why the example of Elijah? Why the example of Elijah? Well, it's because it's the prayer of faith that God is pleased with. It's the individual's trust. It's the individual coming to the elders and trusting the Lord in that. It's the elders trusting the Lord for that person. Once again, remember, let's, let's not forget just where we were last week, Right? Desires the greatest good for others through prayer. And so the prayer is wanting the greatest good. Maybe not that just like with, with Paul, that the thorn in the flesh does not get removed. That the greatest good is that we can be praying and praying and praying that the thorn in the flesh will be removed for Paul. And ultimately what God's will is that the, the thorn in the flesh will remain because it was actually for Paul's greatest good. It was in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings that Paul grows in Christ. As Philippians 3.11 would communicate to us. But ultimately, it's the prayer that is the desire. And so that's what he says. Verse 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And then gives the biblical example of Elijah, the man who prayed. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It means that he was a sinner just like we are. He had the same struggles and wants and sinful nature that we had. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three, and a half, uh, three, three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here's the reality is that do we trust God as one who doesn't doubt and believes God is able to heal, that God is able to forgive, that God is able to bring about, that we want to bring that person before the Lord. This is the picture of the paralytic man when Jesus was teaching in the house, right? And they wanted this paralytic man to get before Jesus. And it was crowded, and they couldn't get to him. And so they climb up on the roof with the paralytic man, and they... They begin to break through the roof and they let the man down. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. The man demonstrated no faith whatsoever. That we can tell by the passage. Let's not read into the passage what's not there. You can say, well, he called for the friends to be able to take him. Maybe, maybe not. But the reality in this was, and then, then there's much debate and people were hearing that. Oh, Jesus, he's going to forgive sins. Who do you think he is, God? Yes. And so Jesus knows that and he says, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? 
and then tells the man to take up his mat and walk. The man's healed. And I think you see a beautiful picture here, right? The faith that's required, right? The working of God, the prayer of of those who are interceding and working on behalf of those. And so you're seeing here the picture that was displayed there physically. You're seeing the same thing taking place here spiritually. Elijah, with a nature like ours, prayed fervently to might not rain for three years and six months and did not rain. And then he prayed again, the earth gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And so the example of Elijah is given there to be able to say, men and women, this is possible for us. God still does amazing things. And so we've got to keep it in context of understanding that God healed every time. No, we don't know which one of these characteristics it is. Is it direct sin that God isn't going to heal? Is it direct sin that God is going to heal and he's, and he's allowed that? Uh, infirmity in their life so that he could manifest it and, and show his glory for it to be healed? Is it a direct, is it is a, a sin or an illness that's not directly related to their personal sin whatsoever? And that God may choose to heal it or God may not choose to heal it. God could choose to heal it, John 9, with a man born blind, or God may not choose to heal it like Paul. Right? So Paul's the one writing many of these passages in the scripture, even in 1 Corinthians 11, that you should judge yourself so that you wouldn't be judged, so that you wouldn't grow weak, weak and uh, uh, weak, ill, and even have died or fallen asleep, some passages say. And so the reality in this is that I think Paul would know. I need to confess sin. And so the, for us, the reality here is that God may choose to heal or God may not choose to heal. But the reality is, are we going to obey the command that the Bible sets forth for us? When there's physical ailments, are they serious enough that we'll go to the elders to let them help us? And so then question for us, how do we practically ob- ob- obey this command? This is it. And we're going to get to our last point. It's not good for you. How do we practically obey this command? If you're, if you're going to request prayer for physical illnesses, you're going to request prayer for physical illnesses. The difficulty then is, is it's easier just to send out a quick text message. But then the reality is, is that if it's related to sin, is anyone around you, is anyone among you that's willing to press you on that issue? That's willing to ask you more questions? That's going to think thoughtfully, as we said, wanting to desire the greatest good for others through prayers we talked about last week. That you would know Christ more and you would understand his will and purposes more. And that, yes, suffering is going to be a part of the Christian life. It is going to be a part of the Christian life. That's why he would tell them in verse 7 and following, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Being patient about it until it receives, talking about the farmer, being patient until the rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts. And as an example, suffering and patience that the brothers, the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord before you. And then consider Job, who remained steadfast or patient. You've heard of this patience of Job. And so over and over and over, you're seeing there's a, uh, there, that we should expect suffering for righteousness' sake. But then there can be times where there's physical illness, physical ailments as a result of our own personal sin. Are we encouraging others to ask us more questions? That's what I was alluding to last week. Asking us more questions. That it could be related to personal sin. If... If, once again, verse 15, and if he has committed sins, we're not saying every time it's directly related to that. But is anyone careful? Do we care for another enough to be able to do so? And so when someone comes to you and says, man, will you pray for me about this? I think it's fine to be able to do so. So I think here would be the picture. Physical ailment, you examine yourself. This is what First Corinthians 11 tell you to do. Examine yourself, right? Is there any sin in my life? I know any sin in my life. I'm married, talking to my spouse, any sin in my life? Your children are older and they're born again. Even asking your children, any sin that you see in my life? Am I not living with my wife in an understanding way? First, first Peter chapter 3, verse 7 would say. And so potentially there could be something there. God's not hearing my prayer. I may even have physical ailment and physical illness because I'm not, not honoring God. It's an institution of marriage. 
And so you're, I think it's fine to ask a, a, a small uh, network of God, uh, uh, a small indi- uh, couple of friends here and there to be able to aid you. But then I, I think before taking it b- bigger than that, why don't you call for the elders to be able to help you? We want to do so. We want to honor this command. We want to encourage you to honor this command. And I think where then it can be dangerous, let me just communicate this, where it can be dangerous is that we just say, more prayers, better prayer. And so, we, so let's say next week you're, we're in our small group time next door in the, in the fellowship hall. Now, hey, please pray for this. Well, here's what the reality can't happen. Or it can, but it could be embarrassing. You ask for physical prayer for a physical need, and yet we need to ask you more questions according to this text, right? Because how do we know if there's sins that need to be confessed? And you need to confess your sins so that, your, your, your sins so that you may be healed. But that's not really the best place to do so, right? Let me just tell you about my, my wife right now. Let me just tell you what's going on. Man, it's impossible to live with her. It's impossible to live with him. And gossip and slander can, 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 uh, can take place in that time. It's not, and so it's not the right venue for it. And I think it's why the, the scripture would say keeping the group small. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking close friends to be able to pray for you before then sending out blast, email blasts, just more prayers, better prayer. Be able to say, hey, there's a biblical prescription for praying corporately, and here's what be the instructions. I should examine myself. I think it's fine. Even if you see in First Corinthians, uh, I mean, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins one to another, that'd be the body. I think that'd be a, a small group. But then I think quickly thereafter, and I think even as members uh, in giving counsel, if I were a, a, not a pastor, I would say, hey, I'm happy to pray with you. I'm happy to ex- help examine you. But then I think I would encourage you to do what James 5 would say, that you should set up an t- appointment with your elders. Right? And here being why. Physically, you go to your primary care physician, do you not? But then there's times where then it seems like there's, there's not anything happening. So I'm examining myself. I'm reading, looking it up on Google. All right, so I'm examining myself. Oh, okay, I don't know what this is. Oh, this could be anything. I might be about to die right now. I go to my primary care physician. That might be your friends. And then ultimately, I need to go to a specialist, right? And I think that would be a similar picture here for us to be able to happen. But what I think is, can be a careless approach is that we just ask people and we're not praying humbly. We just ask people to be able to say, I want this ailment to go away, but we're not doing, willing to do the hard work of self-examination, of asking others to examine us and going to the elders to examine us as well. Now, when I say examine, I, even when it comes out of my mouth, it's like, oh, a test, an exam. I don't want to flunk this thing. I don't want them to think I'm ungodly. Listen, we're, we're like Elijah with a nature like his. Elijah's a sinner. Pastor Tim and I, sinners who've been redeemed and forgiven, just as you, if you've been born again, are redeemed and forgiven. And so we're not coming with any judgmental. We want to help you. And let me just say this as well. Why would it be another good point for us to be able to, to encourage you to go to the elders? God, like Paul, may not answer your prayer for healing. And we don't want you shaking your fists at God saying, and, and vilifying God's name and blaspheming God's name. We want to help you to suffer um, gracefully and spiritually and God honoring in your, in your suffering. Not everyone's going to be healed of cancer. Not everyone's going to be healed of the physical infirmities they have. God may have a thorn in your flesh for his purpose that in your suffering, he's glorified. Now, I don't want that for you, but I'm also not God. I don't know how good and gracious his ways are. He does. And so we want to help prepare you even in suffering. And so it's not just to judge you. It's to aid you. It's to come alongside of you. And yes, yes, yes. The, the effect, the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. We believe in prayer. We believe God heals in prayer. And we want to pray for that. But not just that. We want to help you in your walk if God chooses not to heal. And so I believe this process to be extremely helpful. And then right in that last vein, number five. Number five. The Bible will say, even in the context of sin, 
It says, number five, pursue those who wander from the truth. And that would be in prayer as well. And not just in prayer, it would lead then into obedience, but praying that God would help us to pursue those who wander from the truth. Verse 19, my brothers then, if anyone you wanders from the truth, that would be sinning, right? So it's still in the context of sin. Wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. That means he would repent. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's why I just want to speak to, uh, uh, speak about Fred and Lisa, uh, Lisa Dudash this, this morning. And you guys know the, the, their desire to, uh, to pursue their, their child in, in recent days and the tremendous difficulty that that is. That was not an easy process. And to pursue the child from wandering from the truth, what appeared to be wandering from the truth, and you just keep walking through the areas of church discipline, to pursue a child wandering from the truth, that's not easy. It requires, I'm sure there was much questioning of yourselves, much questioning of the scriptures, questioning of the process. But one day there's repentance and restoration or salvation. The reality in this is that what a blessing that we're standing for truth. And so men and women, there's individuals that leave this body in a variety of means, not all for sinful reasons. Hear me, let me be clear. Not all because they're not saved. Don't hear me say that. If you hear me say that, you're, you're not listening. But there are times where individuals are leaving for unbiblical, unbiblical reasons and you're not, so once again, go back to my senior superlative of being friendly. You're not being helpful to them just by, they say, well, I don't want to gossip. I don't want to talk about that. No, no, but I'm here to help you. If you're not leaving for a biblical reason, you're in sin. I don't want you to gossip. But I care for your soul and I don't want you wandering from the truth. And so they can hide behind, I don't want to gossip. I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. The reality is, is that why, what's the reason you're leaving? And I think it's okay because why? They could be a brother or sister that's wandering from the truth. And you could be one that could bring them back. And let me know, let me just say this. If you're one who brings them back, that sinner from wandering from, will save his soul from death. There are, there are individuals, as First John says, that they went out from us because they weren't really of us. They aren't really Christians. Yes, there's some, as Mark chapter 4 says, that spring up and they look like they're, they're a plant like everyone else. There are sheep and goats. There are wheat and tares. They grow up and they look exactly alike. But persistence would say, perseverance would say that the believers will persevere. And just because they leave this church doesn't mean they're not a believer and they didn't persevere. But the reality is that some who leave this church never get plugged into another church, aren't growing in their walk with the Lord, aren't are, uh, are seeking the Lord's face, and, and ultimately... It might be revealing that their soul is leading to death and they need to be called out upon that. And so men and women, I just want to say it's our job. This is he's riding to the body together, not just the elders. The body together that we would pursue those who wander from the truth. And so if the response is, hey, you know what? It's really none of your business why I'm leaving. Let me just give you an example why that would be utter foolishness. That's like, Losing your arm and saying, hey, why did you lose your arm? It's none of your business why I lost my arm. Or why your wife would depart. And, and literally, Pastor Tim heard some of these examples as we were having our membership interviews. Oh, we love this church. We love you guys as our elders. There's nothing theologically that we're in disagreement with. There's nothing that we have in against to you or the body whatsoever. We absolutely love you, love your families, love our faith family. We just feel led that we should go somewhere else. Now imagine that I come to my wife tonight 
having a party at our house tonight. Shortly after everyone leaves, we all put on a happy face. And shortly after they leave, I come to my wife and I say, baby, I love you so much. I tell you that I think you're one of the best wives on the planet. You serve me. You serve our family. There's nothing that you would do that I would ask to change. Nothing theologically abhorrent about who you are and what you do. You do me nothing but good all the days of my life. But I just feel led of the Lord. I should leave you. She going to buy that, ladies? She going to buy that? Talk to me. Absolutely. Thank you. There's a, there's, a, there's a wife there that understands. Absolutely not. Men and women, we have a responsibility that there are individuals who will wander from the truth and someone Someone needs to care for them enough to bring them back. And so all I'm saying is that that's why we need to pray. That's why we need to see. That's why we need to follow the Bible and what it says. Because ultimately, if that sickness leads as a result of sin and will continue to lead to sin, they will eventually be one who will wander from the truth, potentially. God doesn't hear. God doesn't answer. And it may be because they're not, they're, they're not turning loose of some sin in their life that needs to be repented of. And so that's why I call for the elders. We could be to seek out and pray with you and encourage you and not like like uh, judge you in some like uh, like presuppositions that you're some heinous person. We don't know. We're just going to ask questions. But we we love you. We care for you. Just as I would if my son came to me and said, "My dad, my my stomach hurts really really bad. I don't know if it's his appendix. I don't know if he's bloated. I don't know if he's constipated. I don't know like I don't know what it is. So do I just go? I'll just pray for you, son. What well, am I something to do with how he's eating? It might be that he's completely anxious and worried all the time. And so as a result of that, his body's responding to a sin, which is a sin of anxiousness and anxiety and worry. And the Bible says you shouldn't worry. And so if I care for him, I think I might need to ask him a few questions. And that's the point of this passage and the point of our communication. Not to say we're trying to put a grapple hold on prayer. But we do want to encourage you that in our culture, it's really easy to say, let's just pray for anyone and everything. Anyone and everything, let's just pray for. Pagans saying, man, somebody has difficulty in sight, man, I'm praying for you. Who are they praying to? And is there mighty working in that prayer? They don't even know the Lord. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. Now listen, if you've gone through extreme suffering, sentiment is not worth very much. Can I get an amen on that? Extreme suffering or extreme physical ailments, sentiment doesn't mean very much. I want solutions. I want answers. And we have a God who is mighty and powerful. But he's prescribed a manner for us to come to him, and a manner for us to trust him. And he's not promised that he's going to heal every infirmity. And so we don't want to, to vilify his character. We want to vindicate his character. He is righteous and good, and we need to trust him in that. And so for us, I would just encourage you to think through this past. And so I would encourage you to read through the notes that we've gave you here. I can send you additional notes with more of this information as well. I didn't put uh, all this down on your notes because I didn't want it to be that you have three pages of notes in your handout. Um, and then I would encourage you to take through the reading plan and we'll go through that this week and study it and then be prepared. I know there's probably lots and lots and lots of questions of how this would play itself out practically within our body next week. Uh, you can contact us before this next weekend, but then if not, be ready to ask questions in our small group time as we talk about this and discuss this corporately together and how we can obey this particular passage. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've given us instructions on how to pray as it relates to suffering. You've given us instructions on how to praise you as it relates to cheerfulness. 
And you've given us instructions on how to uh, interact with, with physical ailments and physical illnesses. And Lord, I know this, much of this may be new to this faith family and how to obey this and apply this in, our, in, in this faith family. But Lord, it's wise in what you've placed. It's wise in how you've instructed us. And Lord, we do know there's, there is situations biblically that we see where direct personal sin uh, or personal sin has direct uh, influence on our, our physical state as well. And so, Lord, uh, Lord, we want to guard against that. You want us, you're teaching us to guard against that. And so I pray you'd help us to understand and apply this passage biblically that we could be helped. And so, Lord, thank you for this sweet body. Thankful for this last few weeks of, of Q&A time. And, uh, Lord, there's a, there's a church body that is not indifferent to your word, that wants to ask questions. That, Lord, we've, we've had to stop every single week before the questions were finished because we've got a thoughtful people, a careful people, a biblical people that care about you, that care about each other, and that care about your word. And I'm thankful for that. I praise you for your work of grace in their lives. And I pray you continue to help illuminate our heart, the hearts of our mind, that enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would understand your word. We could understand you better and understand how to interact with you better in prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.